very much, Bruce and the worship team. That was a good song. <laughs> I really liked that one. I looked at Jen and I said, this is good. <laughs> well, um, I am very grateful to uh, be back and um, being able to share the word of the Lord with you today. Thank you to uh, Pastor Jim and the elders for allowing me to do this again. It's good to know that a, a bride still works in this day and age. Um, you know, experienced expositors, they know how not to bite off more than they can chew. And I have a confession. Right now, I feel like a one-year-old who's just tasting cake for the first time. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And while you're turning there, we're going to do a little history lesson. We're about eight days away from October 31st. Now, most people know this as Halloween, right? But it's a pretty monumental day in church history. October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg doors in Germany. Uh, this was a huge moment where he was shining a really bright light on the Catholic Church. And if you know church history, during this time, it was a, a bright light was pretty needed. It was a pretty dark time. And so there Martin Luther is. He nails the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg doors. Eliot had a good idea this week. He said, wouldn't it be great if we wrote 95 reasons why Reformation Day is better than Halloween? And we go and nail it on everybody's door. <laughs> All right, you're on to something. It was a pivotal moment in church history, and when he did that, it led a chain of events that eventually had him writing books, writing papers, and doing all of these things, and his influence was spreading. And it was causing quite a big dent in the Catholic Church. And the church needed a dent or two in it, or 95 so let's fast forward to around April of 1521. Martin Luther has created, like I said, quite a dent, and he is being summoned to a small town in Germany called Worms, where he has to come before the council um, in what is known in history as the Diet of Worms. He has to come before Emperor Charles V, a collection of various princes and electors, and a number of Catholic archbishops. So if you will with me, picture this courtroom-like setting where you have the judge and the jury being Emperor Charles V and his dais. And then you have defending himself is Luther. He's there to defend his views, to defend his teachings, and to defend some of his writings. And on the other side, you have um, a prosecution, a man by the name of Johann Eck. I feel weird saying Johann. It's John Eck to us, but it's Johann Eck. And so you have this drama unfolding. And so Luther comes into the council, and front and center are Luther's writings. About 25 documents at this point, in which he is being asked to recant. Now make no mistake, Luther is in grave danger at this point. Okay? 
You've got to keep in mind that this is a time in history where people lived by the sword and they died by the sword. This is what was going on in, in, in the history of the world. This is what you did. In the church, if they had a heretic, well, it, it wasn't uncommon at all just to take them out back and kill them. That's what you did with heretics back then. And then you'd go along with the rest of your Tuesday. This is a grave, dangerous situation for Luther. To, to illustrate the point, a mere hundred years before this, it happened to John Huss. John Huss was uh, labeled a heretic, and he died for it. He is what we, are, what we know, uh, what we have come to know as a pre-reformer. He started shining a light a hundred years before Luther ever did, and he paid for it dearly. At front and center are Luther's writings. He's being asked to recant, and he does something really interesting. He says, can I think it over? Can you give me some time to think about it? Now, church historians for years have been puzzled by this. Here this is this uh, amazing theologian, and he knew what he was being summoned to, to Worms for. And he needs a day to think it over? Some people have speculated that he was stalling, that this was a stalling tactic, and he was trying to give Frederick the Wise, his most powerful ally, time to get to Worms. He was trying to stall so that Frederick could get down to Worms. The truth of the matter is, he was terrified. If he told the truth, he would certainly die. He was even more terrified to recant and offend his conscience and disappoint the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes the next day in front of the council again and a dialogue between Luther and Eck unfolds. Tension is rising and the drama is building and Luther says this, if our Lord, who could not err, made this demand, why may not a worm like me ask to be convinced of my errors from the prophets and from the Gospels? If I am shown my error, I will be the first to cast my books upon the fire. Eck replied, Martin, you have not sufficiently distinguished your works. The earlier were bad and the latter were worse. Isn't that what you once said about your life's work? Oh, you started off on a terrible foot, but, but as you got better at it, it became pure garbage. Not the nicest thing that anyone said about Luther, but he goes on. Listen to this. Your plea to be heard from Scripture is one always made by the heretics. Now I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Now, if you know anything about Martin Luther, Martin Luther could give people the horns. He has said some of the most meanest things I've ever, I've ever read to, to people who were, you know, trying to cast him in a bad light or trying to break down his, his arguments. He could certainly give people the horns. I would give you a quote here, but after all, we are in the house of God. And I can't repeat some of these words. Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? The tension rises and Luther begins to sweat. And he says this. Many of you know it. 
I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. I cannot do otherwise. Luther and the Reformers believed that all authority for matters of doctrine in the church came from Scripture alone. The reason you have Bibles in your hands today is in large part because of Luther and the Reformers. The reason you have a Bible in your hand today that's actually written in a language that you can read and learn and understand is in large part because of Luther and the Reformers. And they taught that doctrine and theology is derived from Scripture alone. And they came up with a mantra. Sola Scriptura. See, the doctrine wasn't derived by Scripture plus papal authority or Scripture plus traditional church theology. No. Theology is derived by what the Bible says and that alone. And so Sola Scriptura became... A mantra for them. God's word is our authority because it comes from God, who is, after all, our ultimate authority. It's trustworthy because it comes from God, and he is our ultimate source of trustworthiness. It's infallible, and it's inerrant. Having an established doctrine of Scripture is so important because it is a foundation and it's the source in which all of our theology and all of our doctrine springs up from. So we will embark on answering a question today. Can I really trust the Bible? Now, one of the truths that developed from Sola Scriptura is the idea that the Word of God is self interpreting okay and so you see when people are preaching they use all of these cross references right when you're in the book of galatians you're using uh, isaiah to help you understand what paul is talking about you use the book of philippians to help you understand what galatians is talking about you cross reference and the bible is self-interpreting you use the bible to understand the rest of the bible what else came out of Sola Scriptura is that the Bible is self-authenticating. So when we ask the question, can I really trust the Bible? The first thing we go to is the Bible itself. And we see what it has to say about itself. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and we'll start with verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure 
the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He begins verse 16 with, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Folks, the stories in the Bible are not made up. They're not made up. These are not fables. Look, some of the stories in the Bible are, if we can be honest, they're wild. They're wild. Some of them are straight up bizarre. There's some stories in Scripture where it seems to suspend all notions of our reality. And you can understand why some of it is hard to believe. But these aren't fables. It's not made up. These aren't fabricated. This isn't some ancient legend with no verifiable proof. In fact, the Scriptures never require or demand from its readers, from its audience, blind faith. No, no, no. Just the opposite, in fact. The Bible encourages and supports diligent research and investigation. It wants you to dig into the material, and it wants you to use the Bible and dig in and use that self-interpretation. You're supposed to do diligent research and investigate. We know from the book of Acts that the Bereans, they heard the message of Jesus Christ. And what did they do? They investigated. And they'll forever be known as noble for doing so. No ancient writings have ever been more scrutinized than the Bible. And rightfully so, if I may say. The Bible makes some enormous claims. And these claims bear rewards and punishments that will last for all eternity. The Bible gets pretty scrutinized. F.F. Bruce says this, If the New Testament were secular writings, their authenticity would be regarded as beyond all doubt. But these aren't secular writings. They're religious in nature, and they make some bold claims. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. These are some bold claims. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. 
and it's able to make one wise for salvation. Hear me, these are bold claims. The Bible gets scrutinized for these kinds of things. Now, what we don't want is we don't want it unfairly scrutinized, but you could throw that out the window. It's been unfairly scrutinized for, for a very long time. And that's okay. The Bible can stand on its own two feet. It makes some massive claims, though. And it's able to make you wise unto salvation. I come from a church tradition that says, miracles make someone wise unto salvation. Oh, if we could only get people to see miracles, if we could only get people to see that the supernatural exists, then, and only then, will they come to believe in God. You know, Jesus has a a point. Jesus uh, touches on this point. In Luke chapter 16, he tells a wonderful parable about a rich man and a poor helpless beggar named Lazarus. It's one of my favorite parables. It's, it's the only parable, in fact, where Jesus actually gives a name to the main character of a parable. Lazarus. And so you have to ask, well, what's the name for? Lazarus means the one whom God helps. And so here you have this poor, helpless Lazarus, the one whom God helps. And he and the rich man die. Lazarus, the one whom God helps, goes up to heaven and stands beside Abraham's side. He's right beside Father Abraham. And the rich man is cast into hell. And the parable unfolds and and, and the rich man looks up to Father Abraham and he says, Father Abraham, I'm in agony. This is awful. This This is anguish. I'm in misery. Please send Lazarus back. I have rich family. I have rich friends. Send them back to my loved ones and tell them to repent so that they don't end up like like I am. And Father Abraham says, Even if a man comes back from the dead, they will not believe. But they have the law and the prophets. That's another bold claim. Even more powerful than the dead being raised, the word of God is able to make people wise unto salvation. It's more convincing than the dead being raised. So how do we know that these aren't myths? For starters, Peter says that we have eyewitnesses to these events. Someone who can verify and corroborate a story. Peter says that we were eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to his majesty. Now the we he is referring to here is Peter, James, and John. All we really need to do is browse the Gospels and see what these three disciples were able to eyewitness. Let's take Peter for an example. Peter, it seems like, in every story you come to in the Gospels, he's right in the thick of it, for better or for worse. Sometimes the Gospels capture some beautiful moments from Peter where he is able to make great, grand declarations about who Jesus is, and it's a a really great moment. But the Bible also really captures some low moments some of his flaws and failures, and some of his worst embarrassing sins. And isn't that interesting? If all of this was mere fabrication, if all of this was myth and being made up by disciples, you would think someone smart would cut all that dopey stuff out. 
Wouldn't he make himself look way more heroic? Wouldn't he make himself look more like an all-star? But he doesn't do that. For the sake of the truth, he was willing to look like a fool and write down an honest account. Share an honest account. Preach about an honest account. What about John? Hear what John has to say and what his thoughts are regarding the importance of eyewitnesses. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. I can read it, or you can turn there. It's just a couple of pages over. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life that was, which, that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. All you need to do is go to the Gospel of John to see everything that John was an eyewitness to. It's his own memoir. James. We don't know nearly as much about James as we do Peter and John. Mainly because James didn't have this gift of Peter of really stepping in it. He was more on the outside looking in. He doesn't have a book like John does. And so we don't know as much about James. But mainly we don't know that much about James because he didn't live very long. Which brings us to our next interesting point. All three of these men were leaders in the early church. Peter led by preaching and teaching. John led by living a long, faithful life in servitude to God. And James led by dying. He was the first of all the disciples to be greatly persecuted because of Jesus. And he was the first to give his life as a martyr. Now, Stephen was first, but of all the disciples... James came first. All 12 disciples followed in his footsteps and they put their lives on the line for this message, for the teachings of Jesus Christ. They all stepped in harm's way in order to protect the message of Jesus Christ. And hear me, you don't do something like that if it's a myth. You don't do something like that if it's a lie. You don't put your body and your life on the line to protect a lie. You can trust the scriptures because of the eyewitnesses, and they were willing to give their lives for it. Like Luther, these men, when they faced certain death, they refused to recant. They refused to go back on what they had seen and what they had heard and what they know. They refused, and they paid for it with their lives. Look with me at verse 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter specifically mentions the account of the transfiguration. This is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. Jesus and his three inner disciples, his inner circle of disciples, they go to the mountain to pray. 
This was a pretty common occurrence, but something uncommon actually happens. They go to the mountain to pray, and Jesus' appearance begins to change. His face is altered, and his clothes change to a dazzling white in appearance. Now, this moment, I don't need to say it, but it's profoundly supernatural. It's astonishing. At this point in Jesus' ministry, his disciples have seen some pretty amazing things so far. But this moment stands out. This moment is different. Suddenly, two people appear in glory. Moses and Elijah. And they're telling Jesus and speaking to him about his departure and all that he has to accomplish. Suddenly, a cloud envelops them. And inside the cloud, they hear the voice of God Almighty. Peter comes to refer to this mountain as the holy mountain. Now, this harkens back to this understanding that we see from from Moses, right? Moses uh, he interacts with the burning bush, right? He hears the voice of God from the burning bush. And what's the first thing he hears? Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. The voice of God has a way of making something holy. And so God speaks within the cloud. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am very well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. You don't forget something like this. This is an extraordinary moment in these men's lives. Now, Peter could have mentioned a number of different stories, like him walking on water, or maybe the first healing that he saw Jesus do. It was, it was in front of you know, Peter's mother-in-law. He could have mentioned either one of these accounts, but he references the transfiguration because in this moment he heard the voice of God. He heard the word of the Lord. He saw with his own eyes and he heard with his own ears God's manifest glory. How do you know that you can believe the scriptures? Because of the written testimony of the eyewitnesses and the fact that they were sealed with their very blood. Verse 19. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We can trust the scriptures because of the eyewitnesses accounts, the things that they saw, the things that they heard, the things that they touched with their own hands, the messages that they proclaimed and were willing to die for. We can trust the Scriptures because of the eyewitness accounts and the things that they were spreading throughout the land. But there's something even better than that. Peter says it's the prophetic word. And when Peter speaks about the prophetic word, he's referring to the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now at face value, the stories that we encounter in the Gospels are amazing. Stories of healing, casting out demons, Jesus talking to nature and nature obeying. This, and all of that really pales in comparison to the, to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are some amazing stories. These are awesome events. But what is even more amazing, what's an even stronger case, is that these events were predicted 
prophesied and foretold hundreds of years before. In some cases, thousands before they even happened. They were prophesied. He says this in verse 19, and you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Hear me. If you are not a believer, you are in a dark place. You are in, like Luther, a dangerous place. But he's given you a lamp. He has given you a lamp that is like a beacon lighting your path toward life. This word leads and guides you. He's given you a lamp for your darkness. Now hear me. If you don't have a Bible... Come talk to me after church. I will gladly help fix that for you, okay? We will get you a Bible. We'll get you a lamp, right? And don't be ashamed and don't be embarrassed by that. Listen, everybody in this room was at one point in darkness, was at one point in a dangerous position, and they desperately needed a lamp. By God's grace, I came to the faith relatively young. I was about 15 when I uh, became a Christian. I was 15. I was in a dark place. I had very few friends. Um, for, for the most part, I was actually a pretty decent kid. I had a, um, for the most part, I was a pretty decent kid. I had um, a conscience and it was right around the time that a lot of my friends, they were losing their conscience. And so I had very few friends. And the Lord sent me a friend. It was the pastor's kid. Okay? The pastor's kid. And he had a way of talking about God. He had a way of talking about the things of God and talking about the scriptures that made, made Christianity seem so real. And he made the scriptures seem so interesting, even entertaining. And dare I say, he made the scriptures seem fairly fun. And I remember thinking so clearly, if he can have that kind of interaction with the Word of God, maybe I can too. And so I went to him one day and I said, I don't really read my Bible. Can you help? And he said, sure. He goes, uh, we'll, we'll get you a Bible and I want you reading 1 Corinthians. And that's the book I started with. Now looking back, that was terrible advice. You never start someone off with 1 Corinthians. That book is really confusing and difficult and hard. But I would read, you know, chapter by chapter, and I would pick up these little nuggets. This verse, I understood. I got that verse. And then I'd read the next chapter, and I got this verse. I wasn't understanding the story as a whole, but I was understanding bits and pieces. I was taking baby steps. And I made it all the way through the book. One book turned into two books. Two turned into three. And before I knew it, I had the New Testament read. And then the Bible. I was in a dark place, and the Lord gave me a lamp. And by God's grace, 20 years later, I'm in the faith, and I'm reading the Word of God, and it's life unto my soul. 
He continues and he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. I'll touch on this quickly and then we'll move on to verse 20. This phrase, the day dawning and the morning star rising, this is a reference to the second coming of Christ, okay? And so Peter makes a quick reference to the second coming. And so here's the idea with this phrase. You would do well to pay attention to the prophetic word. Well, Peter, for how long? Until Christ comes back. Spend your life paying attention to it. Devote your life to the word of God. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In verse 20, Peter brings up an important, an important topic. Origins. Where exactly do the, do the Scriptures come from? And where do they not come from? Now, certainly the Bible has human authors. No one dares deny that. And the more and more you read the Bible, the more obvious this becomes. Each author has a certain style, a certain flair to when they're writing. And it becomes obvious. The scriptures certainly have human authors. But when you read, you are not allowed to stop there. When you dig in, you get the feeling and the sense that there's something much bigger underneath the surface. When you get to digging in, you get to see that there is something divine happening in the Word of God. So the Bible claims that these writings are not from men, but rather they are from God. That's another bold claim in which the Bible gets scrutinized. And that's okay. Right? We don't have to defend the Bible, in the words of C.S. Lewis, any more than we would defend a lion. You just turn it loose. Give them the word. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, before we leave, we must look at some of the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament and find out exactly why Peter suggests that we can be more sure or certain. What's more sure than the eyewitness accounts? Well, the prophetic word. And so let's take a look at some of the prophecies that we, that we see that, that can lead to this type of statement. The book of Zechariah, we'll we'll touch on three sections of the Old Testament and start with Zechariah. It was written about 550 years before Christ. 550 years before Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the triumphant entry, it was prophesied in some fair detail by Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. 550 years before Christ was lifted up on a cross and pierced, it was prophesied by Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10. Well, Anthony, those are a little bit vague. Can we get more detailed? We can. Isaiah. 
written 700 years before Christ. This is the beauty of the Bible, folks, is that there is such a historical context to all of these books. So 700 years before Christ was born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7 claimed that the Messiah would come and be born of a virgin. Chapter 9 prophesied prophesied that the Messiah would be an heir or a descendant of King David. Have you ever been reading Matthew and you're at the beginning and you're like, oh, why is this genealogy here? This is why. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was frequently saying this in fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus, da, 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 da. Right? Chapter 53, probably the, well, uh, the most well-known of chapters in Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus was rejected by his people, before he was buried in a rich man's tomb, and before he died with a thief on his left and on his right, Isaiah had prophesied that he would be rejected by his very own and that he would be buried amongst the rich and that he would die with sinners. Psalm 22, my favorite psalm. I'll tell you, this is the second time I've been able to to preach with you, and I've been tempted to preach Psalm 22 a couple of times now. And let me say, that's by far my most holy temptation. (laughs) It's a beautiful messianic psalm that focuses and puts a a laser pointer on the crucifixion. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus was going to be mocked for trusting in God. Do we not see this unfold at the crucifixion? Verse 16, He would have His hands and His feet pierced. Folks, this is a thousand years before Christ. This is like 900 years before crucifixion had even been invented. Crucifixion wasn't even a thing at this point. There's a part in the prophetic writings where you get this idea that, man, some of these Some of these guys didn't even know what they were writing. They were just doing this in faith, in obedience to God. This is certainly one of those times. What does that mean to have your hands and feet pierced? This was like 900 years before crucifixion had ever even been invented. And yet it is written down and sealed in history and in the word of God. Verse 18 said that the garments would be divided and lots would be cast for them. So hear me, prophecy is not merely God looking into the future and seeing what occurs. But this is God declaring and announcing what he will do and carrying it out perfectly. Michael Horton says this. I like Michael Horton. You should read some of his books. He does a fantastic job. Michael Horton says that the scriptures are quite clear and that God is an effective communicator. He says the Old Testament is God telling us what he's going to do. The Gospels are God actually doing it. And the rest of the New Testament is God reminding us that he did it. When you look at the Bible in that regard, it's not so complicated, is it? How do all of these prophecies come to pass 
if God is not at the center of it. And hear me, this is just a drop in the bucket of what the Old Testament has to say about Christ and what he was able to fulfill. A drop in the bucket. This is why Peter says is that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You cannot, give to the, you cannot come to the conclusion that these men were just really, really smart. These men were led and guided by the Holy Spirit. And these words are divine. My hope in sharing all of this with you today is that I hope my brothers and sisters will walk out with a renewed love and a, a renewed respect for the Bible. Especially if maybe this is a discipline that you lack, reading your word. Hear me, I don't say that to be judgmental. Uh, I, by God's grace, I've been a Christian for 20 years. There's disciplines that I lack. There's things I need to um, get better at and improve. And my hope is that you come to a renewed love and respect for the Bible and that this drives you to the Word of God. My hope is that you will come to see that what happens up here every single Sunday when the Word of God is faithfully prepared and brought, my hope is that you will come to see that this is deliberate. This is deliberate. It's intentional that we open up the Bible and it, it, you go verse by verse through it. It's on purpose that we, that we do these. Because it is the Bible that is the foundation of all of our doctrine and theology. And it's trustworthy. And we establish the Bible's trustworthiness by pointing to the eyewitnesses and pointing to the prophets. Testimonies that these men gave their lives to protect and to spread. These events were foretold by specific and precise and detailed prophecy, so incredibly accurate that no mere man could produce. And they claimed to have come from God himself. You have to have some kind of answer for these questions. You can't ignore them. You have to have some kind of answer for these prophecies and these oracles. And if it's not God who's orchestrating these matters... And who is? You might be sitting here today and you might not believe. You might not even know if you believe. You might not even care. But hear the word of the Lord. You would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Folks, if we want people to experience the glories of heaven, and if we want them to escape the dangers of hell... We need to give them the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Peter. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Who else are we going to turn to? Who else are we going to turn to? Who else can we follow? Lord, there is no one but you. Lord, and I'm so grateful that we just got to sing how much we need you, how desperate we are for you. Every hour we need you, O oh Lord. And we need your word in our lives. 
Lord, I thank you that you have not abandoned us here on earth to figure things out on our own. I thank you that you hear us when we pray, and I thank you that you speak to us clearly through your word. I thank you that you have given us a lamp to light our way. Lord, we are oftentimes so foolish. We are oftentimes, our eyes are clouded by sin. And we can't see what you have in store for us. We, we don't know what you have for us. But your word clearly maps it out. And Lord, I ask that where I have failed to clearly communicate, where I have been confusing, or if I have left out something major, Lord, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit who has preserved these words. I ask that you send to the minds of my brothers and sisters here in our, uh, this wonderful church today and bring clarity. We love you and we worship you and we glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.